0: We're pondering these questions, of course, at a time when trade policy in general is in a state of hibernation. Doha round of multilateral trade negotiations flounders after eight years of talks. The business community's enthusiasm for trade liberalisation seems to have dropped off precipitously. Uh, the Obama administration, of course, has no concrete plans to pass any of the pending trade deals negotiated by the previous administration. Currently, no authority to negotiate new ones. I notice uh, the announcement yesterday that the Obama administration uh, intends to engage in negotiations for the Trade-Pacific Partnership talks uh, is, a, is a welcome signal that not all is lost. Uh, I, I think it's unclear how much they're willing to invest in the talks, what sort of new demands on labour and environment, for example, they will make in those talks. Uh, So the value of that is is unclear to me, Uh, but it's certainly a welcome signal from an administration that so far uh, has signalled nothing but bad news on trade. Maybe the relative quiet on trade policy, though, presents a good opportunity to rethink the direction and nature of trade policy for the 21st century. Our panellists today have differing views on that future Uh, Dan Ikenson believes that the days of trade policy, at least as we know it, are limited. Phil Levy uh, takes a more optimistic view of the job prospects for trade policy professionals and thinks that trade policy still has a positive role to play. Ed Gresser, as I understand it, takes a somewhat middle ground view between these two positions. But before I go further and ruin everyone's punchlines, let me turn to the panel. Our first speaker today is Dan Ikinson, Dan is the Associate Director of the Cato Institute Centre for Trade Policy Studies. In addition to authoring the study that is the subject for today's forum, Dan has written and commented about many aspects of trade policy. This year alone, he's worked on the future direction of trade policy under the Obama administration, the auto bailout, Chinese tyre tariff decision and Buy American provisions in the stimulus. So in short, he's written and commented on about every trade issue that has been made the headlines this year. Dan has been at Cato since 2000 after working for consulting and law firms on U.S. trade and anti-dumping issues. He's appeared on most of the major broadcast channels and has published widely in the press. He holds a Master of Arts in Economics from George Washington University. Please join me in welcoming Dan.
1: Thank you, Sally. Uh, So we're going to speak about 12 minutes or so, Uh, 12, 15, okay, if I'm going on and on, just... Do this to your microphone for me, please I'll get the book. and Sally mentioned being dispirited by the by the implications in the title of trade policy's obsolescence. I have to tell you, a friend of mine had mentioned to me that uh, hey if you 're very convincing in your paper or in your talk uh, you 're going to talk yourself into the unemployment line and I was conveying this to Phil yesterday, who doesn 't share my view, and he said don 't worry i 'll rescue us both so <laughs> so you got that to to go with. Um, Let me assure you that I I see a role for trade policy. It's not not that trade policy, all trade policy is obsolete. Uh, Trade policy as we know it should be made obsolete. Uh, I I have a view of trade policy as being very different, uh, one that uh, is actually a policy in service to the broader economy rather than a policy where particular goals and objectives for specific well-connected interests are articulated and acted upon. Uh, we need to really make trade policy part and parcel uh, of, of economic policy. And that uh, prescribes a really much more benign, passive sort of trade policy. So the, thr- the thrust of my argument in the paper uh, is that trade policy uh, has not really kept pace with, with commercial reality. Uh, our trade policies today are premised on assumptions from the 20th century and even the 17th century, uh, going way, way back uh, these views about, about uh, global commerce, which just don't really hold anymore today, particularly in light of the proliferation of, of supply chains, uh, uh, of transnational production, cross-border investment. Uh, so we need to start updating our policy to, to reflect that reality. Um, I would argue, also, though, that this, is, this alone does not make trade policy sort of obsolete. I think trade policy has been incongruous uh, with commercial reality for a long time. There have been false trade-offs. False premises, uh, such as the premise that exports are good and, and imports are bad or that uh, trade liberalisation should always happen uh, or should be achieved through reciprocity, you know we'll open our markets if you open yours, uh, and that the goal of, ne- of trade negotiating uh, is to get as much as possible uh, while giving up as little as possible in terms of access to your own market uh, it, it's, it's quite frankly it's difficult for me to understand how trade deals have been uh, accomplished when both sides, both sets of negotiators. Seek to come home to their domestic audiences and say, We really, really, we really won this deal. You know, we, we're bringing home a lot more than, than we had to give up. And I suppose it has something to do with, with why uh, more and more people are thinking that the Doha round is, in fact, dead. Um, if you recall, and I don't mean to pick on any particular person, but uh, this comes to mind the former USTR Susan Schwab, uh, toward the end of her tenure, was promoting the pending, still pending, bilateral trade agreements uh, by telling Congress and the public that, look, the c- the countries with whom we've negotiated bilateral trade agreements in this administration, if you aggregate all the trade, we have a, uh, a, a surplus, an aggregate surplus in trade. And the implication being that that is the objective of trade policy, that we've had a successful trade policy because we've had a, a trade surplus. The problem with that thinking, though, is if you look to our overall trade deficit at the time between... Eight, around $800 billion, it doesn't take much to conclude that trade policy has failed uh, miserably overall. Another example, uh, President Bush, speaking at the UN during one of the many, the dozens of hiatuses the Doha Round has presented to us, spoke at the UN saying he was waiving one of these World Trade Organization, uh, uh, what are they called, Trade country trade reports, trade policy reviews of the United States. And it said, the United States owes its economic growth and its vitality uh, to the fact uh, that it's open, that it's open to investment, that it's open to goods. It's a relatively open economy. And he's touting that. And his conclusion uh, is, at uh, what was at that time, the United States stands ready to liberalize trade further as long as others are willing to go along with us. So the point is, he's missing the point that unilateral. Uh, trade liberalization is actually something that's good. Where is, where is the credibility uh, to reciprocity uh, when we've seen so much unilateral trade liberalization over the last couple of decades? We've seen Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, India, Mexico, Chile. Lots of countries have liberalized trade without need of reciprocity. Uh, two-thirds, a, a World Bank report a couple of years ago found that two-thirds of trade liberalization – in the developing countries, uh, tariff reductions, which were reduced from about 29% to about 9% on average, two-thirds of that was pursuant to unilateral liberalization. I don't necessarily have a problem with reciprocity. Look, if, 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 if we can open more markets, if we're going to open ours, and we can get others to open theirs, that, that's, that's a good thing. But the problem is that uh, we end up doing a lot of compromising. Uh, when, you, when there's reciprocity. We may be willing to go a lot further than the Europeans on ag liberalization, for example, uh, but we will, we will compromise because they're only willing to go so far. Uh, when we uh, predicate liberalization as we do in the Doha round on this single undertaking idea, well, maybe the world is ready for trade facilitation liberalization, but that's all held up because we have to have agreement on all these other, these other areas, all these other aspects <clears throat> so now, I mean, given the changes, given the proliferation of supply chains and cross-border investment, um, I think it's even more absurd to base trade policy on outdated assumptions uh, about reciprocity and exports and imports. Um, where is the credibility to the exports good, imports bad argument when virtually every WTO member maintains average tariffs well below their bound rates? Governments, people know that <laughs> low tariffs uh, are, are, are in their interest. Um, Producers all around the world are becoming reliant on imported raw materials and components and capital equipment. Really the factory floor ha- has broken through its four walls it uh, now spans borders and oceans uh, to the extent that you know, American labor and Chinese labor are often complementary uh, rather than just uh, competing. Uh, in 2008, about 55% of U.S. import value was imports conducted by U.S. producers. So there is a very strong and growing interrelatedness among the well-being of producers and other interests here and producers and other interests abroad. Um, what, is it, uh, what does it mean to say that we get more access abroad than we gave them when we don't even know who we are and who they are? Uh, President Obama a few months ago, before the bailouts of uh, GM and Chrysler, said if you're thinking about buying a, buying a new car, I hope it's an American car but I think we all have disparate views on what is an American car. Foreign nameplate producers account for half of production, about half of sales in the United States. Uh, are they American producers? No, if you say no. Uh, what about U.S. Steel? Uh, the, US, the largest U.S. Steel producer is a majority Indian-owned firm with, with headquarters in Luxembourg. Uh, the largest German steel company, ThyssenKrupp, is in the process of completing a, a $3.7 billion greenfield investment in Alabama, which is... Supposed to create about two, uh, 2,700 jobs. U.S. Steel, iconic U.S. Steel Corporation, generates about 25 percent of its revenue from steel it produces in Slovakia and Serbia. Is that an American company or an Eastern European one? Uh, California, California's entire steel industry, which really consists of rolling mills that do a lot of importation of of hot rolled of, of slab. Uh, and then they finish it, they roll it, and make it into hot rolled steel and other, other products, can't participate in these government procurement projects under the most recent uh, American Reinvestment Act because their products don't meet the definition of buy American because the steel is, is melted or mixed abroad. Uh, there was a fairly famous case, uh, well, at least for me because I was reading about it, uh, Deferco Steel, which rolls imported slab, has its biggest customer, Wheatland Tube, right next door. And they've been doing business for years and years, and Wheatland had to drop DeFerco as a supplier because a lot of that slab comes from Canada. So maybe it makes sense for us to uh, drop these presuppositions we have about what is an American firm and uh, what's an American product and what isn't. I think trade policy is predicated on these outdated assumptions about us and them, about our producers versus their producers. Uh, The reality is that we are often collaborating uh, instead of competing. You've all probably heard the Apple iPod example. You may have seen it in uh, my colleague Dan Griswold's recent book or heard somebody else talking about it. But that is just a great example of the complementarity of, of, of value added in various countries. You know, the back of the iPod says, uh, designed by Apple in California, assembled in China. Uh, there, is, there are components from Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, the United States, all involved in the final product, which is assembled in China, and it's sent back to the United States. Um, Some people point out that the iPod is adding to our growing bilateral deficit with China, Uh, but without thinking about the fact that we're actually supporting high-paying jobs in the United States by by outsourcing the assembly uh, in in China. Um, James Fallows talks about the smiley curve, uh, which If you think about a smile plotted, with uh, the the y-axis is value, and uh, the x-axis is uh, process, the the production process. Uh, The American jobs are at at the upper ends of the smiles. For if you think about the Apple iPod, you think in terms of the the engineering and the design that goes on at the beginning. Some of the production of some of the component production, and then as you come down to the lower value. uh, shipping and assembly, and then coming back to the United States for uh, marketing, distribution, retail. Uh, this this uh, demonstrates a, an interrelatedness between American labor and, and Chinese labor that really labor that really supports U.S. Uh, U.S. jobs. Um, it also speaks to mean, the meaninglessness, I think, of bilateral trade accounting. Uh, f- uh, I don't know if uh, Bob Koopman's in the audience. I think I saw his name on the, on the list. Uh, but he and others, he at the ITC and, and other economists have done a lot of really good work on trying to disaggregate the value of our imports. And their most recent study concludes that about 50% of the value of imports from China is actually Chinese value added. So the other 50% is value added from the United States, use of Australian minerals, Japanese or Singaporeese, Taiwanese uh, inputs. So there is this interrelatedness that we we, we can't ignore. I was uh, disturbed to see in the Financial Times last week uh, an article, an op-ed by an economist from the University of Chicago, no less, suggesting, resuscitating the old Schumer-Graham idea. Uh, he was proposing and imposing a 10% duty on all imports from China uh, until the, uh, the bilateral account got, got cl- uh, closer into balance. But, and he was actually pointing out the fact that a lot of the uh, – if we impose a tax on Chinese value added, which is so limited, the amount of Chinese value that is so limited in this product, it, it actually uh, amplifies the tax on Chinese inputs. But at the same time, he didn't acknowledge the fact that by imposing this tax, you're also imposing a tax on Australian and Japanese and American uh, products as well. So I think that kind of thinking lends uh, credibility – Uh, to what's going on in trade policy now. Uh, I'm sorry, it's lent credibility under our our current trade policy norms um, that where we think in terms of the primacy of U.S. producers, exports are good, imports are bad, the trade balance uh, or surplus is what our objective should be, rather than economic growth, uh, long-term investment, uh, things like that. So... um, I don't necessarily think we need new agreements to increase trade. Look at what has happened since the economic recession took hold. Uh, Mexico engaged in broad liberalization across the board of its tariff schedule to help out its producers, uh, to help out companies that need access to imports. The Canadians have done the same. The Brazilians have done the same. I mean, if you pick up the newspaper, you'll only hear about mounting trade protectionism around the world. Uh, But there really has been a lot of, of liberalization. Uh, and I, th- I think that is reflective of the fact that countries recognize that they are, that there is this interdependence. Um, sure, trade uh, agreements have helped exporters gain footholds uh, abroad, to help gain advantages in foreign markets, but usually at someone else's expense. Uh, negotiators go to bat for some important constituencies and leave others behind or sacrifice others. Uh, if you look at our anti-dumping law, uh, we have... Uh, We've had lots of anti-dumping orders on hot-rolled steel. A couple of years ago, there was one imposed on imported steel from imported hot-rolled from China. Well, as a result of that, uh, U.S. tube and pipe producers who rely on hot-rolled as one of their key ingredients, as their most important material, uh, found it more difficult to compete because the price of hot-rolled in the United States increased, the price of hot-rolled in China decreased, which made it easier for their pipe and tube producers in China to ramp up exports to the United States. So as a result, U.S. T- uh, pipe and two producers brought their own uh, anti-dumping action. and this kind of thing could be dealt with uh, if we had a public interest provision inside of our anti-dumping laws where we actually considered the impact uh, on downstream users. The problem is with the, the thinking that we have, the current thinking that, that colors our trade policy, it's impossible to, to really uh, give much credence to that idea of a public interest provision. Um, we've had sugar tariff rate quotas Maybe it's good for a couple of sugar-producing families in the United States, uh, but it is sent packing, numerous U.S. candy makers and food processors. Um, so we, we, our trade policy is really reflective of the interests of a few, and it shouldn't be. Why do we go to bat for producers when we don't even know who an American producer is, uh, when, we, when producers are only one node in this continuum that goes from product conception to consumption? So let me just jump to the, uh, some implications, conclusions. What should be some of the specific features of trade policy? I just I think the objective of trade policy should be to attract investment, not only financial investment but human capital. Uh, the world is is should not be characterized as our producers against their producers. Uh, all countries I think are competing to be part of this global supply uh, hub and uh, uh, spoke supply. And production chain. And the way to, to serve that role meaningfully is to be attractive to investment, to be an important place, an uh, interesting place to want to live. Um, so I, I think policies that are welcoming of, of the best kinds of workers uh, are the ones that are going to serve us the best. You know, we used to think, think in terms of comparative advantage in terms of industries. You know, Ricardo spoke of the uh, Portuguese winemaker and the English cloth maker. Today, we might think in terms of Uh, comparative advantage as not industries, but production functions, or functions on this supply chain. Right now, we're in a good position as Americans. We're sort of at the top of the heap, but we need to maintain good policies in order to stay there. And other countries around the world know that that is how they are going to ascend the value-added ladder, by adopting good policies. And I think that ultimately is going to be motivation enough for most countries to continue with their unilateral uh, trade liberalization. Uh, It's no longer necessary to have negotiations. Uh, this is in everybody's interest to, to, to act this way. Um, I'll stop there and, and uh, entertain questions during Q&A. Thank you.
0: Our second speaker today is Phil Levy. Phil has been a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute's Program in International Economics since 2006. Prior to joining AEI, he handled international economic issues as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff under Secretary Rice. Mr Levy also served as Senior Economist for Trade on President Bush's Council of Economic Advisers. Before coming to Washington, he spent nine years on the Yale Economics Faculty he has published academic work in journals such as the American Economic Review Ooh, very impressive, and the Journal of International Economics and is a frequent contributor to Foreign Policy magazine online. Phil is the author of a really good article from late last year called Does Trade Policy Matter? So he'll no doubt have some interesting and pertinent perspectives to add. Please welcome Phil Levy.
2: Good. I have visuals. Um, I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, let me say that uh, it is a pleasure to be here today. Um, Dan, working over here, is uh, one of our most optimistic and astute commentators on trade policy, and I always enjoy his work. I, I say optimistic because it was not so long ago that Dan was explaining all the great things we might hope for from Obama administration trade policy. Um, his, his latest piece is actually infused with hope as well, uh, in in some ways, the main argument is that we've played out the reductio ad absurdum of misguided trade policy in which governments blithely support uh, constituent corporations at the expense of everyone else. Dan shows that it's gotten awfully tough to figure out who those constituent corporations are and that the expenses of doing this have mounted. And he concludes that it's time to end this foolishness and that trade policy is now obsolete. So before delving into that argument, which is plenty rich enough to... Uh, support a fairly full discussion of trade policy, let me just echo the conundrum that this poses for a discussant. If I agree, I'm praising Dan and burying him at the same time, since who needs a trade policy analyst in the world beyond trade policy? Instead, out of my great respect for Dan, I will disagree with him, but but only partially. All right. So I'll argue that this paper is so rich that there are at least four statements I could offer that might purport to be its theme. So, statement number one, with globally integrated production, it is much harder than it used to be to define a national interest. Statement number two, many attempts to help local producers are misguided and backfire, harming the national interest. Interpretation, or statement number three, global operations are so big and overwhelming that it is futile to set national policies anymore, just drop all barriers and surrender. Or possibly number four, the optimal national trade policy is neutrality. There's nothing left to debate. I'm actually fine with either statement one or statement two. Um, Dan gives some very persuasive examples uh, in the paper. There's a bit of tension between them, between those two statements. For example, if we can't define national interest in statement one, how do we know it's being harmed in statement two? But that's just a tension. It doesn't rise all the way up to the level of a contradiction. My qualms are with interpretations three and four. So interpretation number three is the nightmare of the anti-globalization groups, the scenario in which we're all forced to drink tainted milk or live next to a carcinogenic factory because no one can challenge the giants of global industry. Note in passing, by the way, that if you are, are sort of a movie buff, almost all the villains these days in any sort of global spy thriller are, are massive corporations set out, setting out to do evil. Just a little side note. Anyways, I, I'll, I'm going to argue that those people need not be quite so worried. Um, number four, uh, the idea that the optimal pal- policy is neutrality is actually just fine as long as we restrict ourselves to the world of tiny producers, tariffs, and quotas. A good chunk of my argument is going to be, though, that the trade agenda is more uh, is full of more challenging issues in which it's actually rather hard to define what neutrality may be. So I'm going to split my remarks into two parts. Um, The first section, in honor of Admiral James Stockdale, will address the question, who are we and what are we doing here? Um, (laughs) The the second section is going to talk about modern challenges to finding a a neutral trade policy. All right. So who are we and what are we doing here? gets to a major theme of, of Dan's paper and he's right that the the facile approach to saying that what politicians or what, what the USTR's constituency negotiation um, should not be say just General Motors uh, and Chrysler um, and, and that that's sort of simple-minded approach is costly and wrong, I agree with completely. Dan's statement that uh, bilateral trade balances are a wildly imperfect measure of our national well-being. Again, I'm with him. He's right. However, that's different from saying there is no us. We can't define national welfare. There an us. Us are, the in the case of the United States, it's the citizenry. It's the people who, who vote, who are represented by a national government. Um, and we can look out for their well-being. And in fact, that's what trade policy ought to do. Um, it's now... Saying that sounds simpler than it it really is because, of course, all of the people, you, um, who who sort of participate in all this play a a multiplicity of roles. They're there as consumers. They're there as suppliers of labor. uh, They're there as shareholders uh, in corporations. So there's a whole range of ways that, that people's interests come into play, and balancing those all off isn't easy, but at least in principle, we do know whose welfare we should be looking out for. Um, again, that, that means that we can define an us and we can define a them when we're talking about trade policy. It's not necessarily us versus them. I mean, this is one of the great lessons of trade policy is that it's not always a zero-sum game or is often not a zero-sum game uh, where one side wins at the other's expense. Um, but there will be some instances where it can be, and I'll, and I'll get to those. Again, Dan's certainly right. The answer does not split easily along corporate lines. Okay, who are we for economic policy purposes? Well, uh, for trade policy purposes, the right unit of analysis is the national government. This is is where people are represented. This is where uh, policy is set. And I just thought I would make a very quick mention as sort of a cautionary tale for what happens if we really aim for neutrality and kind of ignore this, which is Um, which is the the example of Europe right now. I certainly don't mean to condemn uh, European practice in in broad strokes, but if you listen to, for example, the British press talk about the impending oversight of the City of London financial district by a French EU official, there are some concerns about whether people's interests are being well represented and whether they feel like uh, these sort of policy measures, which are sort of aiming towards neutrality and letting a uh, at least within the EU um, are really doing the, the right job to serve those national interests all right um, let me then move on to the the sort of second section which is I'll call it sort of challenges for neutrality um, and I do this with with some trepidation uh, that I think as I said when we talk about sort of atomistic uh, manufacturing firms um, although Adamistic multinationals sounds a little bit oxymoronic, but, but to the extent we're talking about that, the idea that we shouldn't have tariffs and we shouldn't have quotas, um, I'm generally quite comfortable with. I think there are only relatively rare instances where government intervention and an activist trade policy is going to raise national welfare. The list I'm about to give is, has been historically badly abused, that where one sort of puts forward a theoretical possibility, um, people will, will sort of apply it in all sorts of uh, inappropriate ways. That said, for intellectual honesty, we do have to sort of acknowledge there are a whole bunch of complexities out there, and this is the stuff of modern trade policy, or at least a large chunk of it. The the perversities that Dan mentions are real, they're out there, they're problems, but there are these questions too which I think are a little more difficult um, and which I think should keep all of us in business, at least for a little while. Um, All right, so can we say, for example, that in theory, hands off is the best uh, policy? Well, there's one instance that sort of leaps to mind. This is right out of economic theory of the, of the early 80s, which is the strategic trade theory. It says, suppose you have a couple of very large corporations, think large passenger aircraft, Boeing, Airbus, um, that you're not going to have everybody uh, producing at zero economic profits. There will be big rents to be captured. If you are the only large passenger aircraft producer in the world, that's a good thing. And it's, it's, you get to capture all sorts of monopoly rents. Um, And what was shown uh, by a couple of economists named Brander and Spencer was, it could be under certain circumstances, it could be in the national interest to go out and capture those rents. Now, other economists then jumped in and said, wait a second, those are very particular circumstances and you can really mess this up very easily. But the fact is, it's still out there that when we don't have this sort of perfect competition, um, we do have exceptions. Uh, where, where nation, a hands-off national policy may not be the right thing. Extending that point, if we talk about competition policy more generally, again, it's not at all obvious that a, a completely hands-off policy raises national welfare. Um, while I'm uh, smearing corporations, you know, you can think of the Microsoft case, if you will, um, is it the case, the allegation was that a firm with monopoly power could stifle innovation, capture a market, drive up prices, um, and, and stifle competition? If that's true, that's certainly not a good thing for consumers and may well be uh, inimical to national, national welfare. Is this a, is this a trade issue? Uh, well, I would argue it is, because if you have a U.S.-based corporation that is capturing the global market, how else are, for example, European uh, producers, European citizens, going to be represented other than through Europe's trade policy. And to the extent that Europe sort of imposes policies um, on treating Microsoft as a monopolist, you could argue the distinction between that and a trade policy is essentially meaningless. These are uh, inextricably intertwined. Intellectual uh, property protection. Um, This is right out of today's headlines. Do we allow drug reimportation? This is usually cast in the current debate that we're having on health as a question about ensuring drug safety, but I think it really has more to do with allowing market segmentation. Um, And again, in principle, the right answer economically is not immediately obvious. Um, If if a company decides that it's going to sell drugs at a higher price in the United States and a lower price, say, in a developing country, um, this is a form of, uh, of price discrimination, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, uh, especially if you had, if you have none of this, you, you may actually end up with more innovation and citizens who are better off than if you, in some instances, than if you, uh, if you banned that sort of price discrimination. So again, there's a subtlety there, and it's going to depend a bit on the facts of the case. Um, positive local externalities. Um, all right, I'm, I'm trying to give you a concrete example, so we, we just did Pfizer, the concrete example for this one is think Silicon Valley, that in, in our, in, if you go back to Ricardo's time and the sort of canonical economic models, firms produce and the total value of their production is the value of the goods that come out. But it's, it's a common thought now that in some instances there's something else that, to it, to, to, what, uh, to what firms do. And the example is it's a good thing to to be next to somebody who's doing some really uh, creative, innovative work. And our evidence for this is that you look at clusters, and Silicon Valley is an example of a cluster. So why is it that we have computer firms all in roughly the same area? Real estate is awfully expensive there. There would seem to be a huge incentive to open that new startup Somewhere in Idaho, for example, as opposed to Silicon Valley, you can get a better deal on the land. And yet, they don't. The argument is that y- you get a lot of benefits from being near this activity. Um, this argument is overplayed sometimes. People t- talk about going to great lengths to attract um, to attract sort of innovative firms and, and key producers to to their local region. But to the extent that there are these sort of positive local spillovers, these extra benefits you get. Trade policy plays into this, um, where people sort of look to attract a firm to one locale as opposed to another. Um, And then on on negative externalities, again, sticking with the headlines, you can think about trade in the environment. Um, And I won't belabor this. Uh, Sally has actually been uh, writing on this point on the intersection, but we can come up with all sorts of examples where if there's sort of pollutants that emerge from production, in theory, there's a, a trade policy activity, which will be about the only way that, uh, that one country will have to influence another's uh, actions, uh, or only practical way, and maybe optimal policy. Okay, last in this now growing tedious list, services and regulation. Um, again, a mental image that you can take with yourselves. Think of banks and doctors. Um, that we do have trade in these things now, or we could. Um, do, we allow, uh, do we allow doctors uh, trained in Mexico to practice in the United States? Well, we don't actually even allow doctors across states without um, without some extra work, uh, or, or lawyers for that matter. But, but the whole question of services raise, raises a whole raft of issues where a neutral policy gets to be fairly hard to define. Um, and we see this with banking as well, where um, there's a fairly broad acceptance of the need for for bank regulation, but what that regulation should be, there's a lot of difference on it, and, and defining a neutral policy um, is it's quite difficult. Let me just wrap up then uh, with the upshot to all this, which is we do have a well-defined us and a well-defined them. Um, there will be instances where it's us versus them, uh, and there will be some cases where it is, as in the case of large passenger aircraft. I think Dan is, is quite right that with global integration, the costs to bad decisions may well be higher than ever before, Um, and the errors of policy that he points out are real and damaging, Um, but there are new areas that we have to grapple with at the same time. So my friendly amendment to to Dan's title on his paper is, instead of how global economic integration renders trade policy obsolete, I would just switch it to how global economic integration renders trade policy more important and challenging than ever. So, (laughs) thank you.
0: Excellent, Phil. My job is safe. Thanks, Phil. Our third and final speaker to wrap up today's presentation is Edward Gresser. Ed has served as Director of the Project on Trade and Global Markets for the Democratic Leadership Council since June, after eight years in the same position at the Progressive Policy Institute. His major research focuses include economic relations between the West and the Muslim world, East Asian integration and American trade relations with China, the US tariff system and its effects on low-income families and least developed countries, and US trade policy developments. His research has been widely cited by leaders of the major international economic organisations and in the US and international media. His first book, Freedom from Want, American Liberalism and the Global Economy, was published in November 2007. It's very good. Prior to joining the Progressive Policy Institute, Mr Gresser served as policy advisor to then US Trade Representative Charlene Bartoszewski. Please join me in welcoming Ed Grasser.
3: Uh, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. And let me join Phil and you know, my gratitude to the Cato Institute for inviting us and to Dan for putting out such an interesting paper that is rich in ideas and rich in facts and examples and very, very well worth reading from beginning to end and then rereading. So let me, uh, as Sally promised, come down a bit in the middle. Um, Phil's new title would be how global economic integration renders trade policy more important and challenging than ever, rather than obsolete. I guess I would probably strike out the words important and, leaving how global economic integration renders trade policy more challenging than ever, um, though not obsolete. Um, uh, Let me start with a couple of observations on the paper. What I took from the paper was a few things. Um, The common views, the widely shared views of what is made in, what is an export, what is an import, are rather poor approximations of the truth and are becoming poorer approximations as time passes. It's harder and harder to tell where this computer on our desk comes from, where those chairs are made, those sorts of things. Therefore, policy designed to help American producers, Dan cites the examples of steel and of sugar and of automobiles, often proves perverse and even more often proves irrelevant. Therefore, again, um, policymaking should shift from a promotion of the interests of American-based companies and producers to a Design for openness and attractiveness to investment and upgrading of the American industrial and services and human resource space, but policymakers nonetheless in the United States at least are bent upon protecting and supporting and doing all these things that have um, perverse or irrelevant consequences well. In some contrast, policymakers in the developing world are unilaterally liberalizing and adopting continually better policies. Start, I guess, with the areas in which you know, I agree, then raise a couple of cautionary points and give you my own take on uh, policy. Areas of agreement, I think it is very true that the made-in and comes-from terms, are becoming more and more slippery and more and more difficult. I had, um, in my own um, previous job at PPI, a brilliant intern, Phoebe Lung did a kind of similar essay on digital video uh, disc players, DVD players uh, from China, tried to track down, when we buy a DVD player in the store, $70 to $90 on average, he found, where does the money go, Evidently, about five dollars or four dollars went to the Chinese manufacturer. Um, some, you know, five or ten dollars to the retailer, you know, a little bit less to the shipper. But the the big uh, earners were largely Japanese patent pool holders, um, Sony, uh, so forth, that designed some of the internal workings and and were uh, taking royalties from the DVD manufacturers. So a policy designed to defend us against DVD player imports would not have done it. It would have probably shifted the DVD manufacturing to some other country, and Japan would continue to be the main beneficiary of the trade. Second, I think that um, the the case that some of our policies are perverse is probably not so strong as Dan is suggesting, but the the... Case that they're irrelevant may be stronger, the Obama administration has taken some knocks earlier on for being uh, for inertness and provide, you know creating bad news or not creating good news. but I think if you look across the decade as a whole, you find a lot of activity that has re- changed relatively little most of our in most of our work in trade policy over the last you know Since 2001, when China entered the WTO and we normalized trade with Vietnam, has been devoted to free trade agreements. We have done, I believe, 14 new FTA relationships. If you look at the effect on trade those have had, it's close to nil. Uh, Our 14 new FTA partners had a share of U.S. imports about 3.3% in 2001. That is, if you exclude zero-tariff goods and if you exclude energy if you include those goods, it's about 4 point something percent. At the end of the decade, if you exclude the zero tariff in energy, they are down to a 2.5% share. If you include it, they're down to something like 3.7 or so. So what you can see is a lot of work and a lot of emotional and divisive debate to very small or consequence or possibly no consequence. What I can see from this is that... Actually, let, give me one more example. This is in our own, our own system. We have four high-tariff manufacturing industries. They are clothes, uh, home linens, uh, shoes, and luggage. We have preserved our tariff system in those f- industries since the 1960s. In 1970, they employed about 1.7 million people. By 2000, it was 600,000. Now it's about 200,000. So our efforts to change trade patterns through FTAs have not really been very successful. And our efforts to preserve employment and production through maintaining tariff systems in some areas have not proved productive either. What this reflects to me is the very, very large impact that logistical industries have had in this decade. Um, the UNCTAD's uh, annual Review of maritime transport shows uh, there are now about 12.1 million um, container capacity. as compared to about 4 million nine years ago. Our uh, FCC does a telecom report, says international call costs about 8 cents a minute, down from 49 cents a minute at the beginning of the decade. So as the WTO, as multilateral trade liberalization is kind of slow, the costs of moving ideas and the costs of moving things have diminished and the speed of moving ideas and things has grown. So I think as time has passed, a lot of our policies and a lot of our initiatives have become a bit irrelevant. What are my disagreements then? Um, 2 do very briefly. One is that Dan's view, I think, of negotiators and policymakers is a little bit too cynical. Uh, Negotiators... Place, you know, all of their sort of hopes on winning, you know, if they gain lots of concessions and give up none, that is success for them. I think there is a dimension of that to my former colleagues at the U.S. Trade Representative, but it's not the whole way they see these things. I think they do have a, a kind of gut conviction that there is some mutual benefit in trade policy and that the goal is, you know, ultimately a you know better economy, more productive world, and so forth. Policymakers in the United States, meanwhile, um, I think have a, a fairly strong record of resisting protectionism. There's not much of it. We, we tend to blow up relatively small issues like uh, tire tariff or buy American into much bigger things than they really are. And if you look you know, a little bit closely at these things, whether they're good ideas or not, they have been done in all cases, including the Bush administration and raising uh, farm subsidies and imposing steel tariffs, with an eye toward our WTO obligations to the the sets of rules and agreements that are laid down and have tried to keep within those obligations. And when when they have gone outside of them, on the whole, they've been willing to pull it back and push Congress to pull it back. So I think our record is less sort of perverse and bluntly nationalistic than it appears to be in the paper. Having said that, you know, it is true that a lot of what we've done and a lot of the uh, systems we've preserved are either of little value or of little effectiveness. What do I think trade policy then should do? Uh, in my remaining time, let me raise three things uh, fairly simply. One is that trade policy, I think, legitimately and rightly aims to create growth in the United States. Uh, if you look at our GDP accounts, what you see is a sharp drop in the consumption and shopping and home buying of Americans. We have shifted in the last year or so from saving about $150 billion out of family income to saving $450 billion. That has taken 2% of GDP out of consumption and into bank accounts. If we do not replace it then it will be quite hard for us to escape this kind of nightmarish situation we're in now with low growth and 10% unemployment. We can replace 2% of GDP growth through government stimulus, and I think the Obama administration has done a very good job in the face of a lot of misguided criticism on the stimulus issue, but we can't do it forever. We do need uh, to tap foreign growth through exports to uh, return to a more sort of normal and productive path. Second... um, our own trade system is, in many ways, archaic and regressive. Our tariff system, as I mentioned, is, is kind of clustered in clothes and shoes and luggage and home linens and a few other smaller things. This makes it very tough on low-income Americans. Probably the cost of the tariff systems to families in these areas is about $35 billion a year. It's not a huge amount, but it's... it's considerable. It also, the fact that we have this uh, set up also means our trade policy is very, very tough on Cambodia, on Turkey, on Pakistan, on Bangladesh, and a lot of countries that, um, that we shouldn't be tough on, both for ethical reasons and for national security and foreign policy reasons. And we would do well to use trade policy to, uh, to give up these things. Third, we have, and I think uh, Phil was alluding to this, a lot of complex and highly sophisticated issues to address with our uh, more uh, wealthy and sophisticated economy, uh, economy trading partners. I would uh, add to the list uh, that Phil put together a question of introduction of new technologies and new products and the creation of new industries, a lot of the growth in trade, a lot of the growth in wealth comes from technological advance. Each new product in, in all of our economies goes through a regulatory process that you know, and through which governments evaluate the good to see is this safe, is this, uh, work, you know, is this okay to put this out in the market. In the 1990s. We had a a really bad example of how to approach these things in agricultural biotechnology, where our approach became quite different from the European approach, led to a lot of trade conflicts, led to a lot of long-term economic damage, I believe, and I think should lead us to some lessons in how to think about our relationships with the advanced uh, trading partners. Is there a way to develop collaborative and cooperative regulatory policies that will help us, when something new is coming to market, work early on with the European Union, with Japan, with Australia, with Israel, with India and China, too, to develop a sense of what is it that we need to protect in public health and privacy, and all these sorts of issues that new technologies raise? To what extent can we find common ground on them? To what extent can regulators share information early about problems they see and work out uh, as best they can a consensus view on how to proceed? If we can do that, not perfectly, but better than we have up to now, then you will have a lot of trade growth and wealth growth and probably living standard growth that might not otherwise appear. So there I think both in our relation you know in our export goals in the way we treat poor poor countries in the way we manage the very rapid advance of science and technology internationally trade policy retains an important highly challenging maybe not more important than ever but still I think <coughs> high-profile role in our approach to our own prosperity in the global economy and let us uh, let me um, put in uh, close it there and we'll open up to questions and again thanks to dan for his paper to sally for the introduction to cato for hosting us today